the notion of the caliphate was mystified and converged uh, with other sophistic ideals. The Ottomans from the very beginning were keen on adopting uh, Sufi imageries. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. And I'm Alp Erantopal. And today we are here with Hussein Yilmaz. He is an Associate Professor of History and Art History at George Mason, Mason University, as well as Director of the Ali Vural Ak Center for Global Islamic Studies. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me to this interview, Nir and Alp. Today's topic is political thought in the Ottoman Empire, and actually even before the Ottoman Empire, uh, really in the post-Abbasid Middle East. Hussein has recently written a book uh, on this topic. It's called Caliphate Redefined, The Mystical Turn in Ottoman Political Thought. Uh, it came out in 2018 with uh, Princeton University Press. And it's a sort of significant book because we really haven't had not just on the podcast, but also in the field of Middle Eastern history, a lot of work on political thought in this period. For instance, if we were to think about European political thought, maybe some quick names would come up, Machiavelli, Hobbes, these sorts of things. But it's very quite hard to find a narrative of Ottoman political thought in any way. Uh, and so we're very happy to have you on the show. Let me start with this basic question. When you think about political thought in the Ottoman Empire, what do we mean? Why is it that that there hasn't been such a large amount of, of writing on this topic? The reason why we do not speak about political thought in the context of Ottoman history uh, is that it was all, all uh, mostly overshadowed uh, by broader categories. Uh, one is imperial ideology. Uh, so political thought has been studied, uh, was often in reference to, uh, to the so-called imperial ideology. Uh, it's definitely part of political thought, uh, but political thought cannot be reduced uh, to imperial ideology. Secondly, uh, not only political thought, uh, but almost the entire Ottoman thought uh, or intellectual history uh, has been long considered as um, a sort of uninnovative continuation of Islamic thought uh, and intellectual history, uh, which uh, doesn't require much attention because we see all these well-established concepts and ideas in the Ottoman case, uh, so they must uh, refer the same ideas and uh, concepts uh, at the time when they were first uh, conceptualized. So okay. these approaches just uh, prevented historians uh, from seriously engaging uh, with Ottoman political uh, thought. So here you're referring to this kind of to this notion that in this post-classical Islamic period, there just wasn't anything new, no, no new innovations, that everything, all thought was derivative in a sense. Yes, that was the idea. Uh, long Had longs away uh, in Ottoman historiography, as we all know. Of course, uh, in, in the past decades, it was seriously uh, questioned from all um, angles. Right. Uh, but perhaps to better situate what I will say is I have to uh, uh, say a few words about uh, the my general observation uh, about authority in the broader Islamic tradition, okay. which I see in almost every text somehow 
mentioned or referred to or alluded, uh, even if it's not specifically dealt with. And that is the question of uh, the nature of political authority, or the nature of authority uh, after the prophet by the 11th century. We see that there is general understanding that the prophet had three natures. Uh, the prophetic nature as Nubuwa and saintly nature mm. as Wilaya and uh, the political leadership, political nature uh, as Sultana. Uh, so he represented three authorities, three natures. Mm-hmm. And different sections, segments of uh, Muslim society claimed uh, to be inheritors uh, of that. Uh, so the Abbasid caliphs, uh, for example, only claimed, uh, actually claimed more, uh, but identified with the Sultana of uh, the Prophet. The ulama conventionally considered themselves uh, uh, that they were inheritors of Prophet's nubuwa, mm-hmm. uh, speaking for the religion. And saints, especially from 10th century onwards, uh, or those Sufis claimed that they represent the wilaya. Uh, of the prophet. Now the question is, which nature is superior, and whether it is possible uh, to combine uh, those natures. It was again almost universally agreed uh, that, except for uh, not across all sects, uh, but for Sunnis, uh, for example, the first four caliphs combined all these three natures. Afterwards, uh, these were fragmented. So the idea was uh, the proper authority was fragmented from very early on mm. and there is a noble pursuit to uh, recombine it uh, to reunite it now uh, the opportunity um, i would say the best opportunity uh, or the best context came uh, with the fall of the abbasids or towards the fall of uh, abbasids from 10th century onwards the caliphate in the sense of executive power is pretty much a formality Towards the end of the Abbasids, especially with the fall of them, with the Mongol uh, invasions, Asia Minor uh, now serves as as the Wild West mm-hmm. uh, of the Islamic uh, world, not in the sense of uh, as, as a barren place uh, for learning or culture, uh, but in the sense for the experimentation uh, of new ideals. Uh, so uh, I would argue uh, that uh, the most... Uh, exciting place um, in the Islamic uh, world at the time in terms of uh, the interesting figures uh, from scientists, mathematicians, uh, to poets, from jurists, uh, to Sufis, was Asia Minor. Uh, Very, very interesting people came to that person, perhaps for the reasons that they could not articulate themselves fully in well-established learning centers of uh, learning. Now, uh, there... Uh, different political ideals are put to work. Uh, so those dervishes, uh, for example, uh, the most notable, the Rumis uh, and the Abdalan, uh, the most uh, notable Hajibektash, considered themselves as independent. They, they emerged as uh, rulers who claimed to have combined, united all these three natures uh, of the Prophet. They did not consider themselves living under the rulership of or under the authority of some ruler. Mm. They considered themselves as such. How do we know? Uh, With the titles they use. They used royal titles before the Ottoman rulers. Uh, Rumi, for example, named all his uh, grandsons as emirs. And Muhsin Pasha, uh, actually Baba Ilyas, 
uh, his uh, father, uh, named all his sons as Pashas. Mevlana mm. uh, Rumi uh, was uh, known as Hudawendigar. Uh, and Haji Bektash was known as Hunkar. These are royal so titles. these are totals, the, not, the sovereign, the Not as the king. Uh, sort of, uh, these are not honorary uh, titles. They, um, in term, because of their, en- through their engagements uh, with world rulers, uh, we see that they considered uh, themselves above uh, these worldly rulers and only considered them as their executive arms uh, to manage worldly uh, affairs, whereas they themselves uh, considered them above um, all others. And here, the term caliphate served them well. The notion of the caliphate was here mystified and converged uh, with other sophistic ideals, uh, such as Qutb and Gauss, uh, whom the axis mundi, uh, or the pillar of the world, uh, and sainthood, uh, became the main denominator uh, of this name idea of the caliphate. Uh, so it is not just a political rulership, uh, but it is uh, a status accorded uh, in the spiritual realm mm-hmm. directly. Uh, so one needs to be worthy of it. And by virtue of it, you can combine the executive and epistemological, which is the Nubuva, authorities. Uh, so sainthood became or considered by those uh, as higher uh, than the other natures of the prophet. So, I mean, this is quite interesting because what you're saying is that you have uh, these 13th century holy men, saints, Haji Bektash, uh, whose tomb is uh, outside of Nevshahir, and uh, Jalaluddin Rumi, whose tomb is now in Konya, are all of a sudden claiming themselves with these new concepts, are calling themselves caliph, and using these terms to project some sort of political authority uh, upon the Anatolian Peninsula. Yes, uh, but as I said, if we um, uh, if we try to understand their notion of the caliphate in reference to the Abbasids yeah. uh, or juristic notions of it, it doesn't make sense uh, because Mevlana Rumi or Haji Bektash never. Uh, attempted to build uh, an army, a state, a bureaucracy per se. Yet their order claimed to rival uh, and institute uh, a wholly uh, different order within an order, regardless of political entities uh, around. Of course, in practice, uh, it proceeded through negotiation uh, and at times uh, through uh, skirmishes. Uh, or, or opposition uh, to it. Uh, Baba Elias had such a vision and he rebelled uh, against the Seljuk rule. Bedrettin had such a uh, vision and rebelled uh, against the uh, Ottomans. Uh, Abdalan, sometimes they uh, rebelled, but mostly uh, they uh, engaged with the Ottomans because in their justification or understanding, it was the Abdalan uh, sheikh uh, who had who was the real wielder of uh, authority, whereas the Ottoman ruler uh, was just his executive uh, arm. I mean, we have uh, fantastic encounters in hagiographies uh, between those sheikhs uh, and rulers in which a sheikh accords uh, the worthy rulership of a given area uh, to somebody. Uh, in one case, Aydinol uh, Umur Bey. Uh, was considered as Sultan, uh, the Sultan of Ghazis 
by Arif Shelebi, mm-hmm. uh, the Mevlana's grandson. Uh, okay, I just wanted to you know maybe the diffuse and fragmented nature of the political authority in Anatolia allowed these people to somehow uh, experiment with new utopian political and social communities, in a sense, right? Asia Minor and then the Balkans uh, is a place where there is no strong political uh, leadership. In that context, uh, those Sufi brotherhoods uh, were at least as powerful uh, as uh, those principalities, uh, which we know, uh, be it Aydinoğlu or Germianoğlu. Remember, most princes started to call themselves as Celebis. Uh, it's interesting because Celebi is a uh, is a uh, Mevlevi innovation. Uh, it comes from them. So the ones who got affiliated with the Mevlevi order got their that got that title, uh, and then some uh, received the uh, titles uh, pashas. Uh, and the first Ottoman pasha is Suleiman Pasha. Almost hundred years later, uh, then it was first used by the Abdalan. So it's not just uh, utopian. The Bektashis. The, or the broader Abdalan constituency, or the Mevlevis, are very well organized. They have networks. Uh, they have lodges. Ulu Arif Celebi, uh, actually the grandson of uh, Rumi, travels almost entire Asia Minor and Caucasia, converting leaders uh, to his cause, establishing uh, their uh, lodges. And the devotees of these Sufi orders have... Or, or display a lot more stronger affiliation than their affiliations to political leaders. So just uh, an example, a person living under the Ottomans uh, may not have felt that they were living under uh, the so-called Ottomans, which were not known as Ottomans then, but they would be known as a Mevlevi uh, or if, if they were affiliated with Abdalan uh, group uh, with that Uh, group. So th- those affiliations were a lot more stronger, uh, the Sufi affiliations. Uh, and they're mostly autonomous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they, they are self-sustaining. Uh, they don't need worldly rulers. So that's why uh, worldly rulers um, had to negotiate them with them more than those Sufi groups had to negotiate uh, with those worldly rulers. I mean, this is a fascinating picture of the power of these Sufi orders and of Sufism in general in the cultural world of medieval Anatolia. How does this then transfer over, if we're going to jump to the Ottomans now, how does this transfer over to, let's say, Ottoman political thought? Because obviously the Ottomans over the course of 14th and 15th century are slowly taking over and consolidating their rule across Anatolia. Do they then take up these uh, these very same ideas in their notion of, of rulership? One reason uh, the Ottomans uh, succeeded uh, in relation to other uh, principalities uh, at the frontier was that their ability to refashion themselves in the sophistic imageries. Mm. Uh, so just remember uh, Osman Ghazi's marriage uh, with uh, Malhattan. Uh, it is also, I mean, Bitlisi is a genius of late 15th uh, century, uh, recasts uh, that story Uh, in symbolic terms, uh, in terms of uniting the uh, spiritual world uh, with the uh, material world, uh, because Malhatun is the daughter of uh, a sheikh, uh, right? And then the entire dream represents that uh, Sufi imageries. 
uh, and it, it's also a quite messianic, which uh, got later uh, elaboration. So all, the Ottomans from the very beginning were keen on adopting a Sufi imageries, apart from sovereign titles. Their sovereign title was Beg. So Beg means uh, you have independent rule in a given uh, place. But they adopted a host of other titles, uh, which makes only sense uh, from a sophistic uh, person. So they continuously appealed uh, to that, showing uh, that they are also uh, spiritually uh, worthy uh, for the rulership. And also, there was a working relationship uh, between the Ottomans uh, and Sufi groups. The tacit understanding uh, was that, from a Sufi perspective, uh, the real uh, leader as caliph uh, of over entire creation was, of course, the Sufi sheikh. Uh, and the Ottoman ruler was uh, the temporal ruler, obedient uh, to the sheikh. But that's only tacit. It doesn't have any ceremonial or uh, or real application. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, the Ottomans also purposefully propagated uh, that imagery in the way that they are fully endowed uh, with the spiritual qualifications uh, to be the real caliph. Uh, over the creation proved by the fact that those Sufi leaders uh, are under his authority. So one of the interesting themes that you bring up in your book is that with the rise of these Sufis, you have a new sort of moral paradigm of rulership that it's not about the institution of the caliphate per se, but it's about the moral qualities of the, of the individual who's become the ruler. What does it actually mean that you need to transform the morality of the ruler? The caliphate uh, increasingly, uh, not initially, uh, increasingly start to serve as a moral paradigm. Uh, and that is uh, to reform uh, the ruler to become uh, the ideal ruler, which is prescribed uh, prescribed by the Sufis or by, by, by the scriptures, uh, basically, uh, or by any strains of uh, political thought. Because the Ottoman political thought, we at times call it Islamic political thought or continuation of it, was a lot more uh, complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, in it, we have Persian, uh, Greek ideals, as well as uh, the very Ottoman experience itself. So caliphate became a notion firmly grounded in the Quran, but defined increasingly uh, reflecting different ideals of these cultural strains. Because caliphate was, uh, still is, uh, the most convenient term. And we see that in this process, it was almost exclusively defined in reference uh, to chronic verses, not the historical caliphate. So what, what does that mean? What's the... It means uh, that caliphate, you know, as first conceptualized as uh, the deputy of, uh, or the successor to the prophet. And jurists came up with an elaborate uh, set of qualifications uh, to become the successor of the prophet. That doesn't fit to the Ottoman profile because one of the basic tenets was uh, that once belonging to the Qureshi uh, tribe, the Ottomans obviously did not. Others, well, uh, not quite uh, because it has to be fully just, knowledgeable, uh, etc. I mean, those those could be twisted but still uh, problematic. However, uh, the chronic notion of uh, the caliphate as God's deputy on earth, uh, also who would reflect God's attributes uh, on earth, 
could be elaborated in any way you want. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, fast forward, uh, the ideal uh, notion of caliphate um, in the Ottoman times, which we see elaborated from both advocates of the empire, or the Ottoman dynasty, uh, or Sufis um, outside. The one who reflects um, God's attributes in his life and uh, management. And most important among those is mercy. And that is uh, a very uh, Ibn Arabian conception uh, in the sense that um, it, it, most Sufis, uh, and uh, including Ibn Arabi, by the 13th-14th centuries, thought of mercy as the sort of the dominant attribute of God. So mm. a good rulership, the proper caliphate, should act as the deputy of God's mercy. Uh, so that's a moral uh, paradigm. Uh, I'm so how do you show that you're merciful? Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, but that's a different question. No, the thing here is God has so many attributes, mm -hmm. like Jalal, for example. Uh, it could, God could be angry. Uh, God could be a revenger, uh, right? Those attributes were not highlighted um, at all. Uh, so, uh, including, uh, of course, perhaps a bit paradoxically, uh, Selim the uh, First was identified as um, Halifei Rahmani. So, <laughs> the the Caliph of God's uh, attribute of mercy, mm -hmm. uh, right? I mean, the but that is that's how they are envisioned. It doesn't have any uh, sort of application beyond the ideal realm. It's just that way. If you want to be a true caliph, that's how you can be uh, a true caliph. Of course, uh, by virtue of their executive power, they can justify themselves as such and, exa and act exactly uh, in opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So there is, there, is, there is no mechanism uh, to check that. I think there's still a presumption that these values and ideals by uh, circulating within a society create an image of an ideal ruler and how an ideal ruler should act and uh, what qualities they should possess yeah. and how you should transform the ruler into that person. There is no check uh, in the sense that there is no institutional uh, mechanism uh, to evaluate uh, and take the sultan or the caliph uh, into question uh, whether you act properly or not. But I think uh, that very notion uh, created a significant uh, social and cultural check uh, on the way the sultans envisioned themselves and acted uh, in relation to that. Because we have so many Sufi rebellions uh, in the Ottoman Empire from 15th century onwards. In almost all cases, uh, the basic argument uh, is that the, uh, the claimant, uh, the rebel, sees himself uh, a better manifestation uh, of God's, or the real manifestation uh, of God's mercy or other um, attributes uh, with, uh, with moral uh, impact. And the criticism is that the ruling sultan or the caliph uh, does not qualify because he doesn't reflect. He mm. doesn't, he's not endowed uh, with those qualities. So there is a pressure. And if given that uh, the Ottoman uh, society uh, had become increasingly shaped by Sufi orders, mm -hmm. uh, both in urban space and rural uh, space, that means uh, the, the real 
wielder of political power, the Sultan, the Caliph, um, at the at the helm, is under that uh, pressure. Right, but he I has to act in accordance. Mm. I think this is a good example because so often when we think, when you tell me that the ideal ruler needs to be merciful, we don't think of this as, I don't know, a true political value or something. It's hard to imagine this in practice. But when you think about this period when there's constant rebellions, constant other Sufi sheikhs or um, other political competitors that are using this language to make these political claims to legit to have the uh, legitimacy to rule, the argument becomes much clearer, I think. Yes, it also, um, to use, uh, again, uh, a modern term, uh, widely democratized the very idea of the mm -hmm. caliphate. Uh, because uh, now whoever thinks uh, that one has uh, the proper qualifications or worthiness uh, for caliphate could claim so. In fact, uh, we have so many no-name um, Sufis who claim the position mm -hmm. uh, because it is a position accorded in the spiritual uh, space. So that basically pressurizes uh, the rulers uh, to at least propagate the image uh, that uh, they are acting in accordance. But this is uh, to, uh, to, to perhaps uh, prevent a misunderstanding. This is only about the caliphate. Mm -hmm. uh, the Ottoman rule itself has a host of other uh, issues, checks, and areas of legitimacy, uh, including its own experience, uh, the canon, etc. So they have a different, they also have a variety of other discourses about power and legitimacy of course. that they're integrating in. Uh, yeah, maybe uh, just to put in the things into a, a broader perspective to finalize this talk as well. Uh, it's it's the general notion that, you know, Ottoman sultans did not really favor the title of caliphate before 19th century, before issues of, you know, international sovereignty and the appeal to the jihad, etc. So how should we understand this? I mean, it was simply our notion, the general notion that caliphate was not significant for 19th century is wrong or is just based on different notions of caliphate in, you know, the medieval Anatolia and our modern understanding of the caliphate? Yes, um, as you said, it's uh, it's quite a different notion of the caliphate uh, that came to be uh, reimagined, reinvented in the 19th century by the Ottomans. Uh, that juristic notion of the caliphate as the universal leadership of the entire Muslim community as its executive uh, power collapsed. It was long gone, and there was no real attempt uh, to revive it uh, for so long. Um, until the 19th uh, century. And the real challenge at the time was not to reunite the entire uh, Muslim world politically, uh, but to re-legitimize uh, one's rulership in the newly conceived ideal of the caliphate. Uh, because those Sufi leaders already uh, are posing themselves uh, as God's deputies on earth, seeing themselves above uh, political rulers. Uh, so any political rulers now uh, trouble uh, is not go expand and reunite and claim himself uh, in the way the Abbasid caliphs did, uh, but just to legitimize himself to the very uh, local Muslim constituency increasingly shaped up and dominated 
by those Sufi uh, dervishes and uh, leaders. So at that, I think the Ottomans uh, succeeded. Uh, I mean, they themselves increasingly accommodated uh, Sufi orders until, unless uh, they, of course, uh, rebelled. One good example, uh, I hope we're not taking too much of time, is uh, the, telling the competition between uh, the rulers uh, and the Sufis, also between Sufis and Sufis. Uh, the Mevlevis could not enter Ottoman territories for more than a century. So that shows us uh, that uh, the competition is very real. I mean, there is no uh, theological, uh, perhaps, uh, difference between the Mevlevis or, or, or the Ottomans, but there is no Mevlevi lodge in Ottoman territories. The first one is instituted by Murat II, mm. and that is after uh, Bedrettin Rebellion. Bedrettin Rebellion thought Ottomans, uh, the reality of Sufi leadership is, is uh, touched now. Uh, they realized that, uh, and they opened Ottoman territories, more and more Sufi strains to counter uh, local uh, Sufi strains. And they also uh, more and more integrated themselves uh, with Sufi sheikhs uh, so that they could uh, uh, portray the Ottoman ruler in the way they portray their own uh, sheikhs. So the uh, kind of caliphate uh, that came into circulation in the 19th uh, century, first of all, had no validity uh, in 15, uh, 16th uh, centuries. And the 19th century caliphate uh, was uh, an, an attempt uh, to recreate the historical uh, imperial um, caliphate uh, with very little attention uh, to its philosophical and moral foundations uh, that were developed under the Ottomans. Well, there's so much more that we could discuss, Hussein, uh, in your book. We haven't even uh, touched upon many of the topics in it, but I will have to recommend that the listeners uh, go out, pick up a copy for themselves, and uh, read through it. It's an inspiring work. With that note, let me thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Alperen, for co-hosting this. And for our listeners that want to know more, please go to our website. There'll be a bibliography. Hopefully there'll be a few images, basically a few other resources and links where you can go and find out more about the topic. And if you want to keep listening to the Autumn History Podcast, subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast app and join our Facebook group, which has over 33,000 like-minded listeners and fans. 